you know, people, our friends, our family, they, you think they're on your side and then they're, they're acting like they're not. People, people fight and they fight dirty, don't they? And it's, it's a sad reality of life. You know, you'll, you'll be at work, colleagues, they're abusing their power, calculating, um, yeah, manipulating, trying to, trying to show you up or bring you down. I don't know if you can relate to, to some of these, these ideas we're, we're exploring in the psalm today. Yeah, sometimes in life, things are just plain hard, aren't they? And um, last week, uh, a really dear friend of mine, uh, her father, who was 60, unexpectedly died in a car crash, and there I was with her. Uh, she's not a believer, and I was... I didn't know what to say, you know. Um, it's just hard. But these things, these things happen, and they're just a part of life. And you kind of you wonder, how can you make sense of these hardships that are in the world? Uh, well, that's what we're looking at today. In today's psalm, David is under attack. And through the psalm, I think he really cleverly explains how we can think about it and how we can deal with it. Uh, it's, it's a crisis point. That, that's what's happening in this psalm. So let, let's get into the text. Um, picture David, King David. There he is in his royal throne room. And his advisors, they come rushing in. And they've got bad news. And then verses 1 to 3, uh, they're in quotation marks because they're the advisor's exclamation. They're, they're presenting, they're laying out the problem. And as they lay out the situation, I think they paint a picture of human life. They, they just paint a picture of the human uh, state here on earth, uh, something that we all go through. I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Um, let's see if I can get this thing to work. As, as an aside, more College, where I study, it's... Um, this is a world-renowned Bible college. And now I'm in second year. We've learned to draw stick figures, as you can see. <laughs> and now you notice I don't have any arms. It's not a theological position about the nature of humanity. It's just the arms are really annoying to draw, and I don't think you need them, so I've got rid of them. <laughs> um, so verse 2, if you've got it there, David's advisors, they run in and they cry, we must flee. David, we've got to flee. Why? Well, if you look at verse 2, follow along. Uh, For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. Their guns are loaded, they've got us in their sights, and their fingers are on the triggers. What's more, they're in the shadows, aren't they? Um, We we get that at the end of verse 2. It's unforeseeable. They're shooting from the shadows. We can't even see them coming. We're helpless. We're powerless. Um, and as you can see, I've, uh, I've represented this helplessness with the small umbrella that the stick figure is holding. Uh, have you ever felt like that, that your only defense is about as useful as a brolly that's designed to hold off rain is against arrows that are designed to pierce armor? I don't know if this makes sense to you. I, I love it. I think it's a good, uh, good at capturing it. In fact, I think the psalm may have been improved if David had thought of it, he could have, at the end of verse 2, said, uh, my only defense is a, a small umbrella. <laughs> but he didn't, and I don't know, maybe he disagreed with me, but <laughs> I should probably move on. Verse 3, uh, it says, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can we do? Uh, I think verse the end of verse 3 here, it's a... This last word from the advisors is a, it's an expression of helplessness. And 
it's, it's an existential cry. What can we do when we're being, when we're under siege as we are? And um, it reminds me of the movie The Castle. Daryl Kerrigan, there he is. They want to take his house. And all he can really say is, it's not fair. It's, it's Marbo, it's the vibe. It's just not fair. Um, and so this, this kind of attack could be you at um, many parts of your life. On one slide behind, many parts of your life. Um, it's a description of the human condition that hardship is constant and we are at its mercy. So what can we do in this moment? The moment that's always before us. Well, David's advisors, they give their um, cry out of fear. They say, flee. Um, you get that in verse 1. Um, Try to seek refuge. Find refuge somewhere, David. You've got to get out of now quickly before things get really bad. But the question is, where can you go? Um, I don't know when the last time you worried about the threat of an incoming arrow. It's probably not been on your mind. It probably hasn't been keeping you up at night. But what has been keeping you up? Um, what's been worrying you? You know, we're under siege in so many spheres in our lives. Uh, family and work, and, and you look at the statistics on this, we, we do flee. That, that is our response. The, the, the averages are that we, we change jobs every four years and we, we get a divorce after eight. Uh, so, so maybe fleeing is kind of what we do. And David's been there. In fact, he's there right now in our psalm. And to the idea of fleeing, he says, no way, Jose, not a chance. Um, how can you say to me, flee? That's how the psalm begins, isn't it? David begins the psalm with his answer. God is my refuge. I won't be going anywhere. Now, in some ways, it's not surprising that he says that, is it? When we're reading the Bible, after all, and he is the psalmist, it's the kind of thing that he would say. I could forgive you if you hear him say this, and you're kind of like, well, yeah, of course. Of course he would say that. The real question is, how does that help? Um, how does God being your refuge in that moment actually help? I mean, there's David. He's about to get shot with an arrow. How does it actually help him? Um, in that moment, is it, just a, is it just a teddy bear or a comfort blanket? You know, it makes him feel good. Is that all that it is? In, in these moments, uh, it is hard to know what to say. I remember, um, I remember I had a friend who lived here in Fitzroy Falls and he started going out with a girl in Sydney. He was an electrician doing an apprenticeship. So he was really busy here, but he'd travel up to go out on dates with her at night. So he was always tired. And anyway, things took a turn for the worse and they broke up and I, he was distraught. I remember I was sitting there with him and didn't know what to say, as usual. Uh, I was like, oh, oh mate, look, there's, there's plenty of other girls out there. There's plenty of other girls out there. Of course, now they're married, and <laughs> I hope he's forgotten that that's what I said. I certainly haven't reminded him. <laughs> and, and you hear these kinds of weak, watery lines that don't really say anything, you know. Um, time is a great healer, or only the good die young. Or I like this one from um, Franklin Roosevelt. He said, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot on and hang on. <laughs> that's... <all. laughs> How does that help me again? I'm not sure, but it's hard. What do you do, right? Well, David's answer in verse 1 is that God is my refuge. Um, do, do you find this comforting? Religious critics say that uh, the idea of being comforting God, it is. It's just a comfort blanket for the unintelligent. And, and you get that 
kind of thought as soon as you turn on the TV. And so we're going to look at that. Is that the case? Is it a flimsy answer? Um, yeah, how does it really work for us? So here's how we're going to look at the question. Um, we're going to look at two alternatives to David's answer, and then we're going to look at David's answer and why it's actually very clever and very helpful. Um, so the first alternative is um, the glass half full. So that you might call this um, humanistic progressivism, uh, if you wanted to put a, a label on it. Th these guys are optimists about the problem. Um, what do we do in a crisis? Well, this alternative says we fix it. We get out there and we fix it. Indeed, it, it pats itself on the back and says, we've already done a great job. Um, Steven Pinker's book, it's out now, uh, it's called Enlightenment Now, and um, it's the epitome of this idea. It's, people love it, it's a bestseller. It came out um, beginning of the year, sold like hotcakes. Bill Gates said it's his favorite book of all time. And in it, you get this exactly, exactly this idea. So he says, um, you know, look how big our buildings are. Look at how many hospitals we have in medicine. Look how far we've come. Uh, look at all the universities we have. Look at all the food we can produce. We're going up. Things are getting better. You know, it's this attitude that we've, we've crawled ourselves, <laughs> we've crawled up out of the swamp. You know, we used to be in the bottom of the river, but we've grown ourselves legs. We've given ourselves brains. And now there's no stopping us if we all just chip in a bit. That's the, way, that's the way our society thinks. And I've, um, I've represented this um, human endeavor with the small easel that the stick figure's got there. He's, um, this is how he's going to do something about his problems. The basic underlying assumption here is that people are good. And if we, we just set them on the right course, we'll work it out and we'll all get on and things will get better. Uh, make love, not war, you could say. And <laughs> because, because this uh, position assumes that people are fundamentally good, then we can, we can fix the problems like war, you, you know? So I've, I've said there that the guy that was shooting an arrow now is going to see his painting on an easel and he'll paint too. I mean, no, and no one puts it that crudely, but really it is, it's that idealistic. You know, you know, we go into the Middle East, we invade, and then we try and set up democracy because they'll see our democracy and want to be like us. I mean, it's worth a try, but really. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, this, a quick example of this would be, um, you know, on the one hand, we've got technology, and so we can produce lots of food. There's no reason for people to be starving, is there? But on the other hand, we're actually as good at creating suffering as ever. Um, so, so if you look at after the world wars, the uh, Human Rights Declaration and Geneva Conventions all agreed, everyone sat in a room together and said torture is going to be a thing of the past. And then, of course, America um, went overseas. You know, I'm not hating on America, but you know, waterboarding was condoned. That's torture. And you say, actually, we haven't really got anywhere, and we're causing as much suffering as ever. So it's a bit idealistic. But that's, that's one alternative to David's seeking refuge in God. We can save ourselves is the basic idea. There is another alternative, um, and I, I've kind of loosely called it that of the glass half empty, the pessimist. Um, nihilism or uh, existentialism kind of come out of this. And this, uh, this alternative basically says that all your worst fears, they're probably going to come true. They, they will probably eventuate. You've got that to look forward to. Um, life is bad. We're exposed. And that's, that's just how things are. It's pretty depressing. Um, your issue was that you expected it to be better than that. But fool be you because it's not. 
I'm not, I'm not making this up. This is a genuine approach. And I'm kind of presenting it as an extreme, but in those moments when we're tempted to just accept pain as a part of life, as though it shouldn't be, sorry, as though we accept it because it's there, but the reality is that it shouldn't be. Um, and so people, people embrace this. And um, yeah, so, so my favorite example of this is the, uh, the Greek Stoic philosopher. His name was Cicero. Um, now, he was Nero's tutor. Nero, uh, the, the Roman emperor Nero, if you remember from the, the New Testament, he was the guy who was going around persecuting Christians. So this guy was a bad dude. And uh, one day he decreed that Cicero, his tutor, was to be killed uh, for no reason other than his own paranoia. Nero was worried that Cicero was stirring up trouble, which he wasn't. And Cicero just accepted it. He once wrote that it takes a lifetime to work out how to learn to die, to prepare yourself for death. Um, and now that this moment had come, he simply said, why should I feel sad when all of life could have been this bad? <laughs> it's so depressing. This, this approach quite literally, quite literally is hopeless. That's, it is hopeless. That's what it is. Um, so there's two alternatives. <laughs> the optimist who says we can remove suffering and the pessimist who says just accept it uh, and offers no hope. Well, David, the psalmist, gives his solution, my refuge is the Lord. And now we're in a position to see the significance of Christianity's answer here. Um, as we look at the second half of the psalm, where David answers the two big questions I think we have in, in the moment of suffering. Um, I think in that moment we want to know, where is God now? You know, uh, what's God doing about this now? And, and does he care? If this is happening to me, could he really care? Um, so let's look at David's answer, verse 4. It's the beginning, and he, the first thing he does is he zooms way, way out. There he was, he was being hacked at, his fortifications were being hacked at by these people that are coming at him. David, in verse 4, zooms way out. And he pictures God there on his, as a king, sitting on his heavenly throne in his palace. And David's saying, in that moment, know that God is there. God is there looking down at all that unfolds. So verse 4 says, he, he observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. This is the ultimate form of big brother, isn't it? Uh, you worry about a few security cameras? God sees everything all the time. <laughs> uh, so in that moment, know that God is watching carefully. How does God feel in that moment? Um, verses 5 and 6 say... The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. God hates wickedness and violence and the oppression that goes on. God will judge, just like he judged uh, Sodom and Gomorrah with um, fire and brimstone. <coughs> That's what, it's, that's what it's saying. Um, my mission here today really is to show you how significant this answer is for suffering. Because you kind of go, oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the psalmist here is, is saying something that's really quite profound and, and more than we realize. And 
This dawned on me, uh, recently I read a book by Harry Blomiers. It was written in um, the 1960s. I don't know why I said the 1960s, just the 60s it was written in. And it's called The Christian Mind. And he's kind of basically saying that as Christians, we think like the world. We think as though there's no God without even realizing it in lots of ways. We just take in this way of thinking. And he points to two things, and they come out in this psalm. So, so firstly, we'll look at them. The first one is that of morality, and the second one is that of eternity. Uh, so, oh no, actually, that's too far. I'll go back. So first in morality, what am I getting at? The, the secular world, you, you know, you go outside of the Christian way of thinking, it's not viewed as moral or, mo- or immoral, is it? Uh, it's not viewed as good or evil. It's just kind of better or worse. So, so abortion is just unfortunate. Theft is poor judgment. Murder is just an angry outburst. Cancer is just unlucky. Death is just a part of life. Extortion, well, that's just business. There's nothing that's actually just immoral. There's nothing that's plain evil, nothing so degrading and wrong that you wouldn't watch it on a TV screen. I mean, everything is there. And so anything goes, anything can just happen to you, anything is just bad luck. Can you, can you see what I'm trying to get at here? Uh, for example, there was a, a huge media storm over uh, House of Cards. The, the main character there, Frank Underwood, was played by Kevin Spacey. And in the show, Frank Underwood was a ruthless character. Um, just to pick a couple of incidents, he, he killed a dog just for fun in one episode. And another one, he manipulates a man, uh, politically manipulates him to the point of despair, and the guy commits um, suicide. So he was a, just an awful person on TV. And people loved it. Uh, the, the top ratings, people couldn't get enough of it. And in the, in the media, there was a lot of debate um, about this character, Frank Underwood. Uh, so you'd read things like, um, is Frank Underwood a, a bad person? Or is he a, a good person that just does bad things? Uh, I'm not even kidding. This is, have a look. This is exactly what people were saying. And most people agreed he was a good person. He just did bad things. Now, there's just, this is dripping in uh, irony and hypocrisy because this actor who was playing this guy, Kevin Spacey, then does a fraction of these bad things in real life. He, he, there was a persistent um, unwanted sexual advances that he was uh, you know, putting on people and the minute this came out, people dropped him. No one wanted anything to do with him. They despised him and yet they loved the character. They couldn't get enough of it. But the Christian, we need to see the acts by the hands of people um, as good or evil. Uh, people are righteous or they're wicked. Um, and that's, that's how God sees things. The pain and suffering in the world is, is therefore not unlucky or unfortunate, um, as, though, as though we should expect it, as though it's natural. Remember Seneca the Stoic? Seneca there, he's sentenced to death. He's like, oh, all of life could have been this bad. But no, uh, pain is seen as fundamentally wrong and offensive. Death is bad. Death is punishment for rejecting God. That's what scripture tells us. This is what's so profound about David's response in verse 5, which says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. God hates the wicked. You know, in some ways, it's to our great error that we spend so much time talking about God's love. 
we don't speak much about his hate, and then that means when really awful things are taking place around us, they kind of don't make as much sense. Um, but God hates the wicked. He hates evil. And God's judgment, we're told, is partly now in, in um, consequences for actions and partly on that final day of judgment, um, the day when all the wrongs will be made right and our pain will be put right. And I can feel you um, cheering inside at that prospect. But as David uh, writes, we know that he is part of the problem. You, you know, we, we know he's not beyond rape and murder, we read um, in the Old Testament. And, and the terrifying thing is that, you know, all of us, me too, I can't deny I've contributed to suffering in the world. And so we're part of the problem. And David knew that he had to be uh, redeemed by God to be counted as righteous. Uh, you get that in the Psalms also. And so there are fundamentally only two categories when it comes to standing before God. We're either wicked and God hates us, or we're righteous and God loves us. Can you imagine anything more terrifying than on that final day meeting God and being counted as the wicked, not the righteous? Nothing could be that bad. And so people say that suffering in the world proves there's no God or, or, you know, I I can't believe in a God because there's suffering. You've probably heard of that kind of thing. But in actual fact, suffering in the world points straight to the work of Christ. So we're either here and we're doomed to suffer. God has either put us here and he's left us to suffer, hurting each other, and our situation is hopeless, or we have a great hope. And that's what the psalm's pointing to, isn't it? You see, um, I have a little diagram of this. God who watched from above, he was, he's sitting there in his heavenly throne, we read in verse 4, looking down at us and our suffering. But he didn't just leave it to us. He came down from heaven in the incarnate Christ to rescue us. You see, Christ, who was the eternal king, entered into our suffering. He knew what it was like to be chased by an animal. The idea of flee to the mountains and the psalm. Christ knew he wanted to do that. He was being chased by the Jews. They're about to kill him. He had been there. This is exactly, these, these are his words that we are reading. Um, he knew what it was to want to seek refuge and flee. But he did this for us so that those who trust in Christ don't have to flee. Our refuge is in Christ declared righteous. Um, Oh, that's one too far. I'm, not, I'm still working out these slides. So this then brings us to the second great point. I said we're talking about morality um, from Harry Blimey's book, The Christian Mind. The second one then is thinking eternally. This is what's coming out in David's solution in this psalm, thinking eternally. Uh, so this is a bit of a weird diagram. But just as God came to us, came down to us in Christ, so we will go up to God through Christ, if you can put it that way, if you can... Heaven's not really in the clouds. I'm sure you guys all know that. But, and yet the, the imagery in the Bible pictures it that way, doesn't it? You get that in the psalm. God is in his heavenly throne. And, uh, and so we'll go up to the heavenly throne too. We'll meet God. And so I, I love this image. In verse 4, God is far away on his heavenly throne. And then in verse 7, if you look down the end there, it says, we'll behold him face to face. God who is far off, we'll be here. We'll be able to feel his breath. That's what David's saying. We're going to be right with him. So in in that moment of suffering, remember that. Uh, Often we fail to let this reality transform 
our present situation. That's what Harry Blumiers is trying to say. So um, the world thinks that life begins and then it ends and, and there's suffering in the middle and that's it. Just deal with it. And as Christians, uh, of course, we, we say life begins, we die, but then we get eternity. It's kind of like a, a computer game. You get the second life. I don't, my mental image of that is, you know, you get shot in the game and then you kind of fly up and then, you know, become an angel. And then you get a second life and you come back down and then you get to keep going. And that's kind of like maybe the way we think about it. <laughs> but um, Harry Blumiers is pointing out that this idea of eternity is thinking about it uh, chronologically. It's a, we're thinking about it as an extension on the end, an extension of a chronological sequence in time. Can, can, do, you, do you see what I'm saying there? But eternity is, is now. We're in eternity. We're in eternity with God now, if we think about it Christianly. And that really does change things a lot. Um, so how does that help me when I'm in the middle of suffering? Well, eternity transforms suffering by compensating it and changing its significance. The fact that suffering occurs in eternity with God. So tragedy will be swept away by death into a newer, fuller, richer life. And it's just around the corner. You, you know, we, we don't hope naively that humans can fix suffering or give up on suffering and try to pretend that it's normal. The Christian response is to look to Christ who God sent to fix this, to fix this pain. In fact, he already has, hasn't he? The, the problem of suffering has already been fixed by Christ, now in eternity, as we spend it with him now. Um, so Christianity provides a real answer. And so that's it. Did you see what we've done? We've looked at some alternatives, um, hoping to try and fix it or giving up. And now we've looked at uh, the way that the psalm presents the, the answer. And that is that God is in his holy temple. God sees the pain. He sees the pain of this world unfolding. In that moment, know he's watching. The pain of our life here for us, we're not forgotten. And that's why Christ came. God has done something about it. Why am I hurting? God has done something about it. He, he's, he's fixed the problem. Christ came to save us from this world, from its pain, from our vulnerability, from our suffering. And that is why now as Christians as those in Christ, we can sing this psalm with David because we know that we will see God face to face. Um, so, so in that moment of, of pain, in that moment of suffering, think of verse 4. There is God watching from his throne, seeing it all unfold, hating the wickedness that it is, and know that verse 7, we will see him face to face. We'll be able to feel his breath. And that's our great message of hope. Let me pray to close. Heavenly Father, you are so big and uh, so majestic and your works are so glorious that we just can't get our heads around it, Lord. So I really do pray that um, this psalm, your word, Lord, helps us to see a little bit of that. I pray that your spirit's working in our hearts and minds um, this week to remind us of these truths and may we see just how great your hope is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.